Albert Schweitzer, the early 20th century liberal theologian and philosopher, thought that Jesus' suffering was a result of some unfortunate events. That is, that Jesus never saw his death coming. And so because of his misguided passions and very confusing teaching, he met the unfortunate fate of the cross. Schweitzer once wrote in his book, Quest for a Historical Jesus, this. There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on its last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, and so he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the end of all things, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurable great man who was strong enough to think himself as a spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purposes is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and his reign. Friend, I think Peter, the Apostle Peter, would disagree with Schweitzer. Jesus did not suffer because he was on the wrong side of history or because he was unable to control his own fate. No, God, for his own glory alone, purposed Jesus' suffering. God alone planned and purposed. Jesus himself submitted to the Father's plan to die. This we read last week in chapter 3 and verse 18 of 1 Peter. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. You see, there is purpose in Jesus' suffering. There's a reason why Jesus came and died. And as we saw, it was to bring us to God, that we might have a relationship with God. And through the resurrection of Jesus, for which Schweitzer would vehemently disagree existed or happened, Jesus was raised from the dead as a vindication, a proof, if you will, that what he did was accomplished, that what he sought out to do was completed And that now he has power and authority over all things. And this morning we want to think about, in light of Jesus' suffering, in light of the death of Christ and his subsequent resurrection and ascension where he reigns victorious, how does that affect our everyday life? How does that change the way you parent your children? How does that change the way you go to work tomorrow? How does that change the way you live this life that God has given you? How does the gospel, how does Jesus' death and resurrection transform our lives? So it's not just something we believe, but it's something that changes who we are and what we do. And so as a way of reminder, 
Um, for those that are perhaps visiting or first time, maybe you've been sleeping the last uh, some time now, um, we'll remind ourselves that Peter is writing to Christians. This letter is written to fellow Christians scattered abroad. They are living abroad in various countries uh, for various reasons. They are no longer t- together, so Peter is writing to them. From the very beginning, he has identified them not only as Christians, but those who are suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering for Christianity. But more than that, we learned very early in chapter 1 and verse 6 that they are suffering for various reasons. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing to a people who are suffering, and he hopes through his words to encourage them. Uh, He hopes to to encourage these Christians who are suffering. Now, as we just considered, uh, that they're suffering for various reasons, but as we'll see in a moment, many, perhaps all, are not yet suffering the, the full suffering that they will. One thing to remember as we read this letter, uh, often when we think about persecution, when we think about suffering for the Christian, we often only have a few categories in mind. That is, um, imprisonment, uh, perhaps death, uh, beating, so on and so forth. We we have in mind, you know, one type of suffering. When, When Peter says he's writing to Christians who are suffering various trials. So for you it might be social. It might be economic. It might be the fact that your family uh, has ostracized you. Uh, Perhaps it's be you've received insults because you're following Jesus, because you sought to live for him. And so I hope not to, to be narrow in our thinking this morning about suffering, but to see that God calls us to suffer in many ways. And even here today, as we consider 1 Peter, if you think for a moment, these Christians maybe weren't suffering imprisonment, Maybe they they weren't suffering uh, beatings or or, or beheadings, but those things were going to come. Those things were were going to come to this congregation. And as Christians today, we need to understand that, listen, we live in an increasingly secular culture. An increasingly secular culture that is hostile towards Christianity. That does not want to hear the name of Jesus And so I don't want you to think this morning uh, little of suffering, but I also don't want you to make big things that really aren't suffering. All right? For example, uh, you know, if you get bent out of shape all the time because, you know, they took, you know, Jesus out of Christmas and all that stuff, listen, that's not suffering, okay? You you, you belittle what suffering is, okay? Okay? Uh, but if it's a question of, you know, I may lose my job if I want to follow Jesus. I, I, may, I may have to quit my job in, in order to follow Jesus. Uh, you know, I, I'm being forced in my job uh, to go along with policies for which I believe are contrary to Scripture. 
Perhaps in your family you are being faced with the sort of temptation, or in your life you're, you're, you're faced with the, the struggle. So, so I don't want you to narrow yourself and think, oh, suffering is only when you, know, you go to jail for following Jesus. No, we see that it comes in various ways. But we see that suffering will come. And so this morning we are going to consider that Christians suffer. That Christians suffer. So perhaps you've grown up in a church or you maybe regularly listen to preachers who claim the name of Jesus but who claim that suffering is a result of sin and not blessing. So when you suffer, you must have done something wrong. You, you must have made God mad and that's why you're suffering. And so if you'll only obey God you know, by giving the preacher money, then everything will be okay. No, Christians suffer. We should find it normal to suffer in a fallen world. A world that is broken. A world where the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, rules. And so what does it look like? What is it to look like if we are to suffer? How do we prepare ourselves to suffer well? Friends, that's what we want to think about this morning. How do we prepare ourselves to suffer? And then secondly, what is the motivation? Why should we want to suffer? Why should I endure suffering? Why, why don't I just you know, make it easy on myself and just sort of slip into society and, and, and just sort of you know, get off everyone's radar and, and just kind of blend in? Why wouldn't that be okay? Well, that's what we want to consider this morning. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter in chapter 4, page 1016 in the Pew Bibles uh, provided in front of you if you want to Pull that out and read that or look at that as we consider. Um, I don't have much to say, but God has much to say in his word. And so we will turn there and listen this morning. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. This morning we want to consider that Christians are most like Jesus when they are prepared to suffer like Jesus. Christians are like Jesus in this way. Christians identify with Christ in such a way that we suffer the way Jesus suffered. 
And so Christians are most like Jesus when we are preparing ourselves to suffer like Jesus. And so the purpose of our time this morning, and I think what Peter is is arguing for, is that Christians are to prepare themselves for suffering. Christians are to be prepared when suffering comes. Suffering is inevitable, and therefore you need to be prepared for it. So our time this morning will be centered around preparation and then proper motivation. Preparation and then proper motivation. So we're going to consider three ways to prepare for suffering uh, and then four motivations to endure. Four motivations to to not give up, to not quit, to to not return to a life of sin, thinking that that will lessen the suffering. Well, let's consider first preparation. Three ways to prepare for suffering. Look with me in the text. Peter gives them to you. Think like Jesus. First, think like Jesus. Peter writes, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So our mind is there, right? He's talking about Christ's suffering. And so what Peter is doing here in verse 18 of chapter 3, if you just let your eyes move to the paragraph prior, verse 18, you see that for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Then in verses 19 through 22, he digresses to talk about some other matters. Uh, and so really what he's doing here in chapter 4 and verse 1, he's, he's, he's just picking back up with verse 18. Uh, he began with verse 18 and saying that Christ suffered. What is he referring to here? He's referring to his death on the cross, that Christ died once for sin, uh, for sinners. Jesus does not continually die as you will see in a moment in our Lord's Supper gathering, but we do not sacrifice Christ as the Catholics believe, but rather we remember the once-for-all death of Christ, where He died for sinners. He suffered for sinners. And as you see in verse 1 of chapter 4, the main command of this passage is right there, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. And all the, the gun-carrying folks got excited and, and they thought, man, this is about getting guns and arming ourselves. And, and you, would, you would think rightly, if you consider that, Paul is, or Peter excuse me, is borrowing this word from uh, war. He's saying, arm yourselves. Get yourself armed up. Get your armor on, right? As, as we know, Paul says well in Ephesians chapter 6. And so he says, arm yourselves with what? Look what he says in verse 1. Arm yourself, uh, equip yourself, get yourself some weapons with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. The same way Jesus thought you need to think. So the question for us this morning is how did Jesus think? How did Jesus approach suffering? To be clear, Jesus isn't out saying to us, hey, you know, you need to you know, be a fool and, and suffer for it. No, Jesus here is suffering with purpose. 
Jesus is suffering for the purpose of saving sinners. As we saw in verse 18 earlier, to bring us to God. There is a purpose in his suffering, and that is the glory of God. Jesus is suffering as an obedient son. His father tells him to suffer for sinners, and Jesus does it. And so I think Peter's aim here is for you and I to have the same attitude that Jesus has towards the Father's will. That is, look with me here, if you will, go back up to verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 3, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ as holy. Right, And he begins to sort of outline how we are to suffer well. Then look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. God's will. So when you face suffering, when you face difficulty, when you face trial, you have no one to turn to but the one and only one who purposed that suffering. Suffering is God's will. It's God's purpose. It is His will. And so when it comes, Peter says, listen, we need to have the same attitude towards God's will as Jesus had. We need to approach suffering the way Jesus approached suffering. We need to think about it the way Jesus thought about it. And how did Jesus think about suffering? Well, we heard it clearly earlier from from our, from our brother Charlie as he read Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul employs similar language when he writes, have this same mind among you. Right? That we are to have what mind? The mind of Christ Jesus. The way Christ Jesus approaches sin, uh, suffering, excuse me, we are to have that same mind. Chapter 2 and verse 5 of Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't want to didn't hold on to it tightly. He, he, he loosened it. See, he didn't let position change what he would do. He didn't think himself better than this. Though he was, though he is God, though he is worthy of worship, he humbled himself, right? He, he humbled himself. And he endured the cross. And so, friend, I wonder what is your attitude towards suffering? To prepare yourself to suffer well, you must begin by thinking like Jesus. To think the way Jesus thought about suffering. That, look, I'm not suffering because it's, it's pleasurable. We don't suffer because it feels good. It makes us feel more important. No, we suffer because we're being obedient. We suffer well as obedient children of God. That's our attitude towards it. Well, let's look secondly at verse 2. The second way to prepare to suffer well is to live like Jesus lived. To live like Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 
to so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And there we see it again, not showing up not only in our attitude, but in our actions. That, that not only do we appreciate God's will, but we appropriate it in our lives. We actually do it. We don't just kind of give a yes, an affirmation to, yeah, God, uh, you know, but we actually say, you know what, I will suffer for God's glory. But friends, this is what Jesus did, isn't it? That Jesus was constantly about the Father's business. He was constantly doing and, and telling his disciples that, listen, I do this not of my own accord, but because the Father has sent me. And what does he say to his disciples? So I send you. I send you out among wolves. I send you out. As I have suffered and left you an example, so you are to suffer. Have you ever wondered why God purposed four Gospels to be written at such length? Have you ever considered how much time is taken up with the life of Jesus? You know, we talk often of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Praise God, right? We understand the theological uh, things going on there and the, the, the securing of, of redemption. But it is his life also. Christ Jesus left us an example. So if anything the liberals get right is that Jesus leaves a good example. And thereby we should follow it. We should follow Jesus' example. He left it for us. The example that he left was one that the author of Hebrews used and pointed to to encourage the saints in their faith. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus obeyed his Father. He was about the Father's will. And it brought him joy. He was happy to do the Father's will. He was happy to endure the suffering and the shame and the mocking for God's glory and His glory alone. See, what Jesus is doing on the cross is obeying His Father. He is obeying His Father. And what an example for us as, as our Heavenly Father, as we have already seen, wills that we suffer. And so there may be things in your life that you're trying to flee and run from, which God is saying, I have purposed for my own glory. As we read earlier in chapter 1 and verse 6, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Do you understand that when you flee difficulty, you actually undermine your sanctification? And you undermine your assurance of salvation. 
You see, it is when the, the waves are crashing against the boat that our faith is tested. It's not when the sea is calm and everything's going well. No, it's when oh, oh, all hell has broken loose that we truly are tested. We are truly tested to see, are we really in this? Look, as we heard earlier last week from Bonhoeffer, listen, when a Christianity without a cross is no Christianity at all. A Christianity where you do not suffer, where you do not have difficulty, where you are not struggling is not Christianity. Or at least it's not the Christianity of the Bible. It's the Christianity of, of American made up. And so we live like Jesus. We pursue the Father's will. And thirdly, we prepare well to suffer well when, verse 3, we leave your old life behind. Leave your old life behind. You see, in suffering, in particular, I think the, the kind of suffering that these folks were enduring was social suffering. Social suffering. Uh, that is, you've got to remember what's going on here in, in this culture uh, that Peter's writing to. In the Greco-Roman culture, uh, idolatry was a part of everyday life. These kind of, these vices that he lists here in verse, uh, verse 3, uh, these kind of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, right? We see really two really big things going on here, right? Uh, or three, I guess you could say. Uh, we see sexual sins. Then we see sort of wild parties fueled by alcohol. And then we see lawless idolatry, which I think lawless there confuses, literally Peter says, despicable, disgusting idolatry. So, so I don't think Peter has an aim for disobeying the Mosaic law, as implied in that word lawless idolatry. No, I think like, it is vile. It is like, you know, like that's disgusting. It was a kind of idolatry. You see, everything was intertwined in that society. Everything was about what we, as Americans, celebrate. Since the 1960s in America, we know that the uh, sexual revolution has done one thing very clearly, and then that is to desensitize Americans to sexual sin. Fornication, fueled as we see by alcohol and addiction. And so, I think Peter's writing to people. I think Peter's writing to people who used to do those things. So, so, so it would be wrong of you to think that Peter is writing to the good people. You know, the ones that never did those things and, and who, are, who are kind of standing off in judgment of those who do those things? No, Peter is writing to those who, who once practiced these things, who once participated in these things. And friend, that is good news to you this morning. It's good news because the gospel isn't for those who lived a good moral life, but that those who pursued the worst that this world has to offer. 
This is identified in verse 3 as those who are Gentiles who do what they want to do. And I think I'm not going to spend much time here, but just to be clear, no one makes you sin. No, no one made these people do these things. No one made you sin. Your mama didn't make you sin because the way she raised you. It wasn't your, your, your friend's fault. It wasn't anyone's fault but yours. You are responsible for your sin and you alone. So before God's throne, it isn't, you know, well, my friend made me do it or, or you don't understand my, my upbringing or all this, that. And the, no, no, here, here we see that there is a desire in the heart of man to want to do these things. So, so the problem in this passage isn't like, you know, the bad people outside. It, it isn't the Hugh Hefners of the world. You, you understand that, right? The problem is us. We are the ones in need of a Savior. We are the ones that went along with these things and participated freely in these things because we love the darkness more than we love the light. And so, so brother or sister, if you've been saved for some time now, I don't want you to forget that truth, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. But, but the way to pre- prepare to suffer well is to leave your old life behind. Look what he says in verse 1. I, I, I brushed over it at the beginning. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that seems confusing. It seems to say, nah, is, does Peter mean that there are Christians who, who don't sin? Does Peter have a category for Christians who, like, when you suffer, like, you, you, it's like some sort of process of sanctification, like, and you're done with it? Like, like when you suffer, you're done with sin? I don't think that is what Peter's saying at all. I think what Peter is saying here is, listen, if you're willing to suffer for Jesus, if you're willing to die for Jesus, if you're willing uh, to go to your grave for Jesus, well, it's clear who your master is, isn't it? You're done with sin. I'm done with that. I'm ready to suffer. I'm ready to go God's way and stop living my way. I'm done with sin. Literally here in the CSB, I'm finished with sin. I'm, I'm finished with it. I'm done with it. I don't want nothing else to do with it anymore. I'm through with it. And I'm willing to suffer for Christ. Our own willingness to suffer demonstrates our desire to follow Jesus, as we saw earlier. But friends, as Titus, as Paul tells us in Titus 3.3, that this is the way we once lived. This is what we once did. We pursued these things to the fullest, but thanks be to God, we are done with those things. And so with the Apostle Paul, we join him in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm done with my life of sin. I'm leaving that behind and I am pursuing Jesus. And so as Christians, we prepare ourselves by thinking like Jesus, by living like Jesus, and by leaving behind our old life. We must prepare ourselves. No one's going to do that for you. But God has promised that you will suffer. And so though today you may not really, you might be thinking, you know, God hasn't brought any major suffering in my life. Uh, things are going, you know, pretty peaceably. Yes, there's some minor things that are happening. Well, thank God for that. Don't, don't, don't think that you're somehow less than. But, but that does not mean that you should not prepare, right? The storms are coming. The storm 
perhaps could come as soon as you leave? Are you preparing yourself to suffer? Suffering will come. It will come. I can promise you that. The days of peace are days in which we are used to gather and to prepare for the day of suffering. And so as we consider proper preparation, let's look here, finally, sort of our second main point, uh, proper motivation. What, what's the motive? What, why, why should I do this? Really four motives that I think Peter gives us. First, number one, first motive, uh, why should I suffer because this, this chapter of your life is closed. That is the, the chapter of sin. This life, look what he says in verse 3. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's saying, listen, you've done enough. You participated enough. You, you've, you've, had, you've done enough of it. There's enough sin in the world. We don't need you joining in. Right? You did that, and you did plenty of it. All right? And so that chapter in your life is closed. It's, it's over with. Don't, don't turn back to it. And you can see in verse 4, that's what's implied in the text. Look, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Why are they shocked? Why are they surprised? Why is it that they that, that they're like, whoa? Well, because you used to do it with them. They're shocked because they're like, wait a minute, you used to run with us. You used to run with our crew. You used to do these things. This is what this is who you are. What what do you mean you don't want to you don't want to go and party with us? What what do you mean? And I know some of you saints today, you're thinking, man, I, I don't think I could make it past nine o'clock. I'm with you. Like, you know, I think when I was reading this text this week, I'm thinking, man, partying all night. I just don't think physically I could do that. Um, But nonetheless, right, that's what we once did. That's what we once maybe maybe you didn't actually do it, but you dreamed about doing it. You wished you were doing it. You just didn't have the friends that would, you know, give you the good stuff so you could do it. But nonetheless, that was our desire that that chapter is closed. And so they consider you weird. Like, what do you mean you don't want to jump in with? Friends, following Jesus will always make you look like a weirdo. And if you don't look weird to your friends and family, then perhaps you're not following Jesus. I mean, let's be real. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Now, who wants to do that? Who really wants to do that? Who, who really, in this sort of self-made America, wants to deny anything? This is the land of prosperity. This is the land of pleasure. This is the pursuit of happiness. This is where it is accomplished here. Deny myself. Like, miss a meal? What? I missed a meal in my life. Friends, following Jesus will always make you seem strange. If you're truly following him. It will always seem strange to those around you when you don't join in their sin. When you abstain from sin and, and lawlessness, it will always seem strange. And, and in the midst of that kind of social pressure, it can be tempting to say, you know, I'm just going to join in. I'm just going to kind of slide back into that because maybe they'll let up on me. Maybe they'll, they'll lessen their their insults. Maybe they won't be so hard on me if I'll just kind of look more like them. 
and I'll think more like them and live like them. It'll, it'll, I'll kind of blend in, camouflage, if you will, in this world. Friends, as Christians, that's a problem with the church today. Man, we look so much like the world. We think like the world. We do church like the world. And we wonder when God doesn't bless that kind of behavior. Friends, we want to give ourselves to this. And so the motive here is to say that that's done. I'm done with that. And number two, the reason why sort of a, a second motive is they will never accept you anyways. When, when you begin to seek the approval of men, they will never accept you. Look at what he says in verse four again. He says they will malign you. They will insult you. You can do all you want to look like them and think like them and live like them, but they're still going to malign you. They're still going to insult you. They're still going to laugh at you. What are you doing up there at church on Sunday? That's craziness. Don't you know there's a football game coming on? Don't you, don't you know there's things to be done? Don't you know the kids have activities to do? What do you mean you don't work on the Lord's day? Well, you ain't working here. So be it. God's people will never be accepted in this world. We will always be thought strange, and so don't seek it. Thirdly, verse 5, third motive, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. He writes in verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Literally, he says, they will give a word they're going to have to talk. They're going to have to say something. And, and the judge here is none other than Jesus. The one who is ready. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. And so judgment is coming. Friends, there is a motivation here to silence the insults by joining back in them. But friends, we must remember that judgment is coming. We will be judged. And so you might think it wise to, to hide out in this world, but remember, judgment is coming. And so when we face temptation, when we face difficulty and suffering at the hands of evil men and women, we must remember that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And that is why we don't seek vengeance ourselves. That's why we don't seek to destroy those who cause us harm. But we trust in God. We trust in God's just judgment. We trust that God sees every, everything. He knows the motives of men and women's hearts. They will persecute you. They will slander you. But trust that God will judge. Trust God and not yourself. And then the fourth and final motive is in verse 6. Salvation is coming. Salvation is is coming. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter here offers a promise of salvation, a promise of deliverance. Now, he's got that tricky phrase in there. This is why the gospel was preached to even to those who are dead. Who, who are these dead folks? Um, are, are, are these those, those people that we talked about last week that Jesus went and preached to in, in, in hell? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think Peter here is identifying that Jesus went to hell. Uh, I think they'd be reading into the text something that's not there. 
the Christian Standard Bible and the NIV uh, not only translates but interprets this passage for us when they write that are now dead. That is that Jesus preached to those that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. That is that they received the gospel when they are alive, but since hearing the gospel, they've died. And given the context, it seems to be even that they died perhaps at the hands of persecution. You see, there there was a temptation in this culture to say, oh, look, look, they died. They died, therefore God must not be real. God, your God must not be true. Right? The, the, the whole Old Testament is, is really about that, that center of that question, right? So when the, when the armies came against Israel... Right? They were constantly tempted to doubt God's power to save, right? And, and they would often be tempted and derided, like, your God can't save you. You know, and then they would list all the other gods and be like, well, that, you know, Molech and, and Baal and, and so on and so forth, they didn't save these other countries. We came in and destroyed them. And so your God isn't going to do any, any better. And so at the heart of this is a question whether or not can God really save? Can God really deliver? And Peter offers them hope. Not in some temporal freedom. Some temporal blessing of of monetary or worldly comfort. He didn't say, hey man, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Just just hang out. You know, the suffering will end in a couple years. You know, we get a new president. And, you know, the one that will, you know... uh, you know, make laws like this, then things will get better. He didn't do that. He didn't put his trust in whether the emperor is a Christian or not. Where does he put his, the motive to suffer? But in the coming king. He puts, his, he, he puts the motive here in the fact that one day you will live the way God does. That there is coming a day and so as Christians, we understand that suffering is a normal part of life. We're, we're not shocked or surprised by it. We understand that from various sources and by various means, you will suffer. And Peter is offered here, I believe, sufficient motive to suffer well for God's glory. As we prepare our hearts and as we prepare our lives, our hope is not in, in some quick or painless suffering, but our hope is in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered as an example to us. And as we look to Him, we understand that, that yes, He died on the cross, but He was raised again. And so our hope is in the resurrection. Every Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday. Every, every Sunday we gather to put our hope afresh and new in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So do not put your hope in quick fixes and suffering but in Christ and Him alone. R.C. Sproul, meditating on this passage, writes this, Every day we are judged by people, sometimes fairly and sometimes unfairly, sometimes graciously and sometimes without grace. Yet any judgment made about us in this world, good or bad, ultimately does not count because it is a judgment made in the flesh. The only judgment that counts is the judgment of God. So we are to live not according to the judgments of people, but according to God in the Spirit. Friends, we don't need to worry about what this world thinks of us, but we need to follow our Savior to the cross and there deny ourselves and follow Him and know that eternal life awaits, that though the the flames, right, we may feel the heat of the flames, 
we can rest assured that it is well with our soul. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask for the strength needed to endure suffering. Father, it is no easy task, and we do not think lightly of suffering today. Lord, I pray that you would help these saints to think well, to live well, and to abandon of any hope of returning to their former life. They are new creatures in Christ Jesus, created for good works and for your glory. And so I pray you would give them the strength to endure well, with proper motive and proper preparation. Lord, may we honor you in our lives for your glory and our good. Amen.